Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Craig, and uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church East, and it is so good to see you all here this morning. Uh, we're going to continue our study on Creation Declares, this uh, new series that we've been just starting in the book of Genesis, and uh, I'm very excited about this, this study. Um, and I want to dive right in, because we have a lot to do today, like, like Beth mentioned. One question that I was asked about the leadership uh, sessions if, if you are not able to attend one of those three sessions on five love languages, uh, if you can only attend two or one or whatever, no worries, jump in when you can. Uh, we're gonna have the books, or you can pick up a book on Amazon. Uh, I've got a couple I can hand out, but uh, you've got two weeks to kind of prepare for it, but you can read through the book as we're going through the weeks, and, uh, and we're gonna, I'm gonna give you lots of stuff, uh, lots of meat as we go through. So <clears throat> if you feel like you can only get to a couple of them or one of them, uh, still plan on attending if, if you can. It will definitely be worth your while. And all the women said, amen. Yes, there you go. <laughs> uh, Genesis 1. This is an amazing verse. In fact, this is an amazing chapter. And I thought the best way to handle this is just to read it to you. You've probably heard this a million times. <clears throat> but listen, maybe with fresh ears to these words. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning. The first said, let there be the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made an expanse and separated the waters from the waters, uh, separated the waters that were under the expanse, from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to his kind. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate them the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the heavens uh, to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was the morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, 
Fill the waters and the seeds, seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. I want to tell you the story of a very intelligent man. This man was brought up in a very rich household and he was trained by the best scholars of his day. His father sacrificed everything so that he could get the best of the best to train his child. The boy had everything he needed in life to succeed, and he did. In fact, he became world known. He trained and developed through the formative years in his life in a thoroughly anti-biblical worldview. He never bought into the Genesis account of creation. He believed creation came in a way that his culture taught him creation came to be a way that contradicted completely the Genesis account. He he bought into the worldview of the culture and he defended it vehemently. He became known as one of the most popular men in the entire earth. Then something something happened and changed his mind drastically. Everything that he had believed in changed in one moment. He had such a profound encounter with God that everything that he was taught his entire life was dismantled in a heartbeat. From the first time in his life until he was 80, he had heard the account of creation for the very first time. Up to that point, up to 80 years old, he'd never heard it. And then he heard it as an account in Genesis and believed every word. In fact, after this point, after he was 80 years old, he became one of the greatest proponents for the creation narrative that we have exactly as is written down in Genesis 1 and 2. And he made it his entire life goal to make sure that everyone he met knew the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 and how that everything we see came from God. In fact, this man is the very person that gave us the creation account. This man was Moses. Moses saw a bush that wouldn't burn, seas that split in two, and then came together to devour the enemies, but split in two to save God's chosen. He saw plagues, 10 of them, water that turned to blood. He saw things that changed his life. And then he was given the account, as we have it written down in Genesis, after he came face to face with God and God revealed to him how creation came to be. And his mind, after his encounter with God, was completely changed. This encounter with God changed his worldview. Now, we're going to be talking about this account of creation and it doesn't escape me that in this room and maybe even listening to this um, recording there will be people that have given their lives to Jesus and it's just like okay God said it I believe it and that I'm good to go and you guys have seen God's amazing power and so you're going yeah if if God made it in six days and that's what he said uh, God can do anything and I believe it that's that's great but I also know that there might be some in here or listening to this recording that maybe have not met Christ yet, or have yet to develop their views on how exactly creation came to be. 
And that's okay. You may have come with a variety of questions, things you've heard, things you've been taught your entire life, like Moses, and you've may bought into them, and you're not quite sold on this creation account, this six-day account. That's fine. Come with your questions. In fact, we've already got a list of questions that Michael and I are, are com uh, compiling from people who have brought questions regarding the creation account. We're going to deal with those probably on a podcast. But the bottom line is this. Without faith in God, in a God who can do anything, a belief that he could create something in six days is going to be difficult for you. If you've never given your life to Jesus and never seen and acknowledged his power in creation and his power in your life, then this may be difficult for you to take. I understand that. Come with your questions. I want to honor your questions and I want to honor where you're coming from. But at the same time, I wanted to start by introducing you to this man, Moses, who grew up in a pagan culture, never heard the story of creation, had an encounter with God, and then everything changed. And whatever God said, Moses took his word. God gave us creation exactly as it is so that we can understand certain things about who he is. In fact, creation is meant to be our breadcrumbs that lead us back to God. We are supposed to understand through creation a little bit about who God is. We're supposed to see the things around us and follow them back, walk them back to the fact that there is a God and we can know certain things about God in creation. This is why Moses gave us his revelation as the Holy Spirit told him to write it down in Genesis 1 and 2. This is why it's written down that way. Moses wrote it exactly as God told him to write it. And I want to tell you this also. When Jesus taught, he referred back to Moses as if Moses knew exactly what he was talking about. So Jesus reiterates Moses' account in Genesis 1 and 2 of how creation came to be. It's important for Jesus to teach that way. It's important for Moses to teach us this way because creation is meant to draw us back to God's heart. It's where we see his character. I remind you of this verse that I gave you last week. Romans 1.19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. That's us. Plain to us. Because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature having been, I love this, what are the next two words? Clearly perceived. Have you ever seen something that was clearly perceived? Right? I came over here today in my car, which was in the driveway last night. I was in a hurry, so I scraped it with a scraper that needs to go in the trash. I could not scrape all of the uh, frost off my windshield, but I didn't have time to really take care. It was enough to keep my car going because it was one when I woke up this morning. So I got in the car and I'm driving out and I could not see through my windshield. So I had to do one of those where you lean down and you just got the little defrost down in the corner there. And I'm driving 40, 50 miles an hour looking through this little peephole and I'm just praying like no policeman see me and pull me over and say, what in the world? Yeah. Anyway, uh, that was not seeing clear. Sorry, Joe. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. That was not seeing clearly, all right? Not clearly perceived. Creation is given to us apparently because we can look at it and clearly perceive things about God, about his invisible attributes, about his eternal and divine nature. 
having been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So that, who is without excuse? Everyone. Because you walk by creation every day. Every day you see what God has done. You see a little bit of his heart. You see a little bit of his power. Creation is meant to be the spyglass we hold up to our eye and say, isn't God amazing? He intends for us to see his character and what he has made. He's orderly. He's beautiful. He's creative. He intends us to know his plan. We're, we're supposed to live in creation and to, and to see and examine things in creation so that we understand more about God. We should know science because we mo the more we know science, the more we are amazed at what we found. When I was in high school, the little tiny particles, particles that we could see through a microscope, forget about it. We found particles underneath those particles now. We're changing our textbooks on a regular basis because we're finding more things about in the world on a regular basis, more things about how the world works. And everything that we find is meant for us to go, oh, God is amazing. There's laws of nature. Nature obeys every law. And there's also laws for humans. Humans, however, can rebel. We'll talk more about that when we get into the image of God, into the sixth day when God creates human beings. The fact is we live in a world that does not want to acknowledge that there is a God. In fact, the Bible tells us no one seeks after God. You do not come out of the womb hoping to find God. In fact, the more you understand who you are, the more you want to avoid God. No one seeks after God. It's only until we come to the, to the bottom of ourselves or to the bottom of the barrel or to a crisis moment that we're willing to finally see God, acknowledge who he is, and then we can see ourselves. The world, however, does not really want to see God, and so they must come up with other alternatives for how the world got here. When faced with creation that points us to God, they must come up with alternate ideas. And they study, and we study. Those who believe in God study, and those who don't believe God study. The creation is here for all of us to study. Some of the methods they use they used to find out how old the world is. One of them is a radiocarbon dating method. Have you heard about this method? This, is, uh, this was developed by Lord Kelvin in the late 1800s. He came up with a brand, there's a brand new element that came, on, came out called uranium. They found it, and so he began using that to date items in the world. He proposed that the world, because of his dating method, he proposed the world was 100 million years old. Darwin believed it was much older than that, and so Calvin, believe it or not, Calvin did not like Darwin at all. Because Calvin said, no, it's only 100 million years old, according to his new method. By 1904, Ernest Rutherford used a, found a brand new element called radioactivity. He was able to find out how uranium had radioactivity, and so he began this new found carbon dating method. And he said the Earth had to be at least 16 billion years old. By the 1930s, it was proposed that the continual dating of items that the world might be 3 billion years old. And in the 50s, it crept up to 4.6 billion years old because they found a meteor in Arizona and they dated that and found out that it must be 4.6 billion years old. And on and on and on and on we go till today, and I can't keep up with it, but if you're curious, the world has now believes, those who believe in the radiocarbon dating method, that uh, the world is now 14 billion years old. And now it could get older as we get older, I'm not sure, but 14 billion years old. 
Not only do we use radiocarbon, we also use ob observational dating like erosion and light speed. Um, this light speed one is very interesting because the stars are so far off. Uh, for the light to travel to us, light travels three, almost 300,000 uh, 300, miles per second. And so uh, nothing travels faster than the speed of light. So we are able to see stars far, far, far away because that light from that star travels to our eyeball that fast. Now, those stars are far, far away. And so if you look at those stars and say, I can see that star far, far away, and it's, it's further away. So you can date how long that, how much time that took for that light to get to you and find out how old the universe is. So according to that, for us to see certain stars with our eyes, the world would have to be billions of years old. Another uh, dating method is strata dating. You probably know this one, where you look at the strata in the Earth, and then you can figure out how the layers uh, combine, and, and we can figure out fossils, where they're placed in there, and, and get an idea of how old the Earth is through the strata dating method. In the middle of last century, theories for dating the Earth became so popular that Christians became overwhelmed with all of these brand new theories, and so they developed some theories of their own. Science began looking at Christians and saying, you believe the world was created in six days. How do you explain light? How do you explain uh, erosion of the earth? How do you explain strata dating? How do you explain radiocarbon dating? And so the Christians said, well, we gotta come up with something, and so they came up with some new ideas for how the Genesis 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the first morning and the evening was the first day. Maybe that didn't mean that. Maybe there is such a thing called the gap theory. This, this belief is that there are billions of years between Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 reads, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters. The problem with this theory is that there's no conjunction, or, or there's, there's no continuing conjunction. This is a kind of one sentence, one idea. Genesis 1 and 2 is like one idea. There's no break in the writing. Um, the first prologue tells you what is about to happen, and it's all continual thought. The second problem with that is that sin is not present until Genesis chapter 3. So if you have the world that exists and dinosaurs and all those things that are wandering around, the question is, if there's gaps in Genesis chapter 1, if sin doesn't come until the fall, which is when men came and human beings were created, and that was billions of years after dinosaurs walked and all of those things, you have a sin, you have an earth that was sinless until we ruined it billions of years into the future. So you've got a problem of death and you've got a problem, you've got a problem with all of these theological issues if you believe that the world existed for a long time without being influenced by sin. So, that didn't work for everybody, so they came up with the day-age theory. This is the idea that each day in the creation story is a metaphor representing an epoch of history, a period of history. The problem with this is, as we read the verses, Genesis goes out of the way to say, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And anytime the Bible uses the word yom with an explanation like morning and evening, it always indicates a 24-hour period. Now you've had, you have yom, yom is the Hebrew word for day. You have the word yom used in different, aspect, different uh, other areas like the day of the Lord, which is a long period of time. But you never have yom, the day used with evening and morning, when it doesn't mean 24 hours. It also assumes a poetic approach to the creation 
account in Genesis. The problem with that is that Moses, who wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, this same guy who wrote Genesis 1 and 2, who gave it to us, refers back to it in Exodus 20 as a historical event. He doesn't refer to it in a poetic sense. In fact, he says, for in six days, this is later on, he writes in Exodus 20, same author, Moses, he writes, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. He's referring to the Genesis account like it happened in six days. Then you've got the poetic genre theory. This is a little bit more, uh, a little bit stretching that last thought. This is the idea that Genesis 1 is not history, but it's poetic, so it should be seen as an allegory or metaphor. The problem with this is no scholars can actually agree that this is poetry. The Hebrew that is in Genesis 1, if it is poetry, there's no other poetry like it in all of Hebrew writing. Uh, it contains some uh, repetish, repetition in the chapter, Genesis chapter 1, but it's, it's not repetition like you would find in, poet, in Hebrew poetry. The other problem we have with this is that not only does Moses refer to Genesis 1 and 2 as historic, six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, Jesus does the same thing. In the New Testament, Jesus seems to be under the assumption that the world is made in six days. And he refers to it as a historical event. God made the earth in six days. Another idea is theistic evolution. Maybe you've heard of this one. This is the idea that the findings of evolution are true. We can't, we can't uh, argue with them, so they must be true. Otherwise, how do we explain the light? How do we explain the old earth look around us? Why does the earth look so old? So maybe the findings of evolution are true, but they're only plausible because God took control of evolution and made it happen like he wanted it to happen. So evolution actually is true, but God was involved in making it happen like it happened. The problem with that is this. It denies uh, uh, two, two things. The first one is we never have found a transitional species. Now, if you don't know what that is, a transitional species is like, so a monkey turned into a human being, right? We have no period of time where that monkey actually, uh, that's, that, that uh, uh, there's a transition in the species from monkey to human. You know this to be true because fish who get together make more fish. And birds that get together make more birds. Dogs and cats can't get together and make something. It has never happened in human history, and it has never happened in science today. You can put a zebra with a, with a horse, you can, put, you, know, you can put a donkey with a horse, and you can get a mule out of it, but you can't put a cat and a monkey together and get something completely different. There is no record anywhere of any transitional species because it cannot happen, and it cannot happen today either. And for evolution to occur, there's going to have to be evidence of a transitional species, something that was once a monkey but now is a human being. We assume those things uh, when we teach it to our kids, and uh, it, it just, there's, no there's no transitional species. The second thing is it denies the word of God, and here's, here's how. If you recall in the verses that we just read, every time that God says, Let multiply and fill the earth, everything multiplies after its own kind. Humans make humans, fish make fish, birds make birds. That is the way God intended for it to function. It cannot function any other way.
So, question is, who is right? Well, I'm going to blow your mind here just for a moment because we are told all the time how creation, the thought that God made the creation in six days, is blown out of the water by evolution. Let me just explain to you what you have not heard, and that is this. Evolution has been proven false an enormous amount of times. There are inconsistencies and irregularities in all of these methods, whether they're, um, whether they're carbon data method or the strata, in all of these methods, there are flaws. I'll tell you a few, just so you know I'm not just spewing here. Carbon dating method, they dated somebody who died in the 1900s and somebody who died in the 1800s. Guess who was older according to the carbon dating method? The 1900 person. Outside carbon influences impacted the person in the 1900s more than the person in the 1800s. And so when you use that method for dating, you'll find more carbon imprint, what do they call it, footprint, in the 1900 person than in the 1800, so they look older. They have had flaws constantly in the carbon dating method. You don't hear about this, though. Uh, another part of the carbon dating method that you don't hear about is it was always intended and always functions best when it does function on living organisms. Did you know that? It's not meant to function purely on inanimate objects. Um, carbon dating method was never meant for uh, rocks. Uh, it was always meant to judge the carbon in living organisms. Strata dating, same thing. They have found an enormous amount of inconsistencies in strata dating. One of my favorite is when they find a dinosaur bone beside a footprint <laughs> of a human being. And then you go, well, how did that happen? They say, well, it was, must have been a mudslide and everything got mixed up or whatever. They make up all kinds of excuses. But when they find another thing that says, oh, yeah, the dinosaur was way down here and uh, five billion and, and human beings were here in, in one million. It, it, uh, then they say that's solid evidence. So they point to what they want to point to and they ignore what they find on a regular basis. You can find all this, by the way, just Google it. Um, the bottom line is don't take, take your teacher's word for it. It's interesting to me that the only inconsistencies that we have regularly put in front of us regularly apply to those who believe in a six-day creation. Because a six-literal-day creation has to acknowledge that there is a God. And that contemporary science, for the most part, does not like to live with. So here's my proposition to you today. I propose that the Lord made the world to look old in order for us to go Wow, God is amazing. To confound our intellect is to point us back to him. Without including God, everything we study, change in our view, everything is a wild goose chase in order to find answers while we try to ignore who God is. But when we start with his explanation, when we start with taking him at his word, then we find faith. And that is all the way across the words of Scripture. Here's one of my favorite. Hebrews 11, verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Jesus teaches us this same idea as if 
The world was only a few thousand years old. He says in Mark 10, verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. In other words, he said, since the beginning of creation, we had males and females. Not since the beginning of creation and that 14 billion year period, then we had males and females. Jesus always taught, like it's a continual thought, from the beginning, human beings. He never seems to consider there were, there were billions of years from the beginning to the emergence of Adam and Eve. In fact, in Mark 13 and verse 19, Jesus describes the coming tribulation in the same way. He says this is gonna be the most chaotic period in all of creation. The world these days, this, no, no, no one has ever seen such tribulation. It has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and, there, and it will never be. Evolution teaches us that the world was chaotic for billions of years. Jesus says, nope, the world will never be as chaotic as it will be in the tribulation, not since the beginning. So let me get to my outline. <laughs> that was all introduction. Here's the outline. Why did God create it all in just one week? Why make seven days such a big deal? He could have done it in one, right? Why seven? Why these things? Why create the, the world that God did? Why did he create it like he did? I mean, moms, wouldn't it be great to have a third hand? Right? It'd be great, right? Especially if, you have, if, you, if you're with your kids, it'd be great to have another extra hand leading around, but you, you get two. Why did God create us and the world like he did? And three, why this way? Why create us in this way since, uh, and reveal to us the way that he did in Genesis? Let's start at the beginning. Why just one week? The week exists to serve one thing, and that is us. God gave us a week because for us, it's supposed to be significant. In Genesis 2 and verse 2, he tells us why he gives us just one week. On the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Did God need to rest? No. Does God need to rest? No. But he did. He rested from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it kadosh, made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had made in creation. The week, the seven-day period, is, does not function in the world. Uh, if you look through the, the eyes of astronomy, seven days doesn't work. In fact, not every culture had seven days. Did you know that? Romans, they had eight days. They wanted eight days because on the eighth day is when they did all their shopping. So they had seven days of work and the eighth day that they would shop. The Chinese calendar, it's changing even, even today. It's not based on a seven-day uh, week. These calendars are typically based, and the world is meant to function, and the way, the way we judge time is based on lunar cycles, not on seven-day periods. Constantine was the one that introduced us to a seven-day week. Constantine was a Roman emperor who came to know the Lord and made the official religion of Rome Christianity. When he did, he changed the week to seven days, and that's why we have seven days today. That was in 321 AD. God created us to function in a seven-day cycle. It sets his people apart. From the beginning of time, even before Constantine, God says at the beginning of creation, 
He made six days, he rests on the seventh. You do the same. When Moses gets to Sinai, he said, this is so important, we're gonna make a law. First day of the week is mine, rest of the days are yours, seven days. Constantine comes along, he says, let's change that. Let's make the seventh day the day of rest because Jesus rose on the seventh day. That's why he changed it. Six days you work, seventh day you rest. Always based on the Christian worldview from the beginning of time. It's meant to be this way because while the rest of the world works themselves into a tizzy, Christians rest one day. Jews rest one day. They do so because at the end of the year when they count up how they've been blessed, those who work themselves crazy seven days a week, 300 and how many days are in a year? 365 days a year, are tired and beat and have the same amount of money that those who work six days and rest on the seventh do because our blessings come from God. We are meant to hold to the seven-day period because it is a holy way to live our lives. We rest one day a week. The Bible constantly pulls us back to this seven-day precedent. From creation, God rested on the seventh day. Again, Exodus 20, the Sabbath was given to us in legal terms to keep one day separate, which is what holy means. Set apart from the rest. Do all your work in six, rest, do something different on the seventh. And Jesus in the New Testament also brings this up. Here's what he says. Mark 2, verse 27. The Sabbath, Jesus says, was made for who? Man. The Sabbath was made for man. The seventh day was made for man. The day of rest, the set-apart day, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even on the sa- of the Sabbath. God built us to function in a seven-day work, uh, a seven-day life cycle. God created this pattern, and he rested on the seventh, not because he needed to, but because he wanted to give us an example to follow. We're going to get back to the Sabbath, actually, as we go through the creation account, but I think as a, as a pastor, I know I don't function like I should if I don't take one day and rest. Even if it's like three quarters of the day and rest. Uh, and it doesn't have to be like my, my parents, when I grew up, they would always take a nap in the afternoon and say, every Christian takes a nap in the afternoon. Now that I'm their age, I'm thinking to myself, that was brilliant. Yeah. But that's not what God intends. It doesn't mean that God took a nap on the seventh day. It meant that God did something different for a reason, and that is to focus our minds on what's really important. Not the six days of work. The seventh day to remember who sustains us really. Who blesses us really. Number two, why these things? Why did God create these things around us? And here's why I believe every part of creation is specifically and uniquely created in a way that can bring God glory. Human beings are at the top of the food chain for a reason. The world will tell you it's because we evolved that way. God tells us it's because we are meant to have dominion over the earth and everything that God created. In fact, over and over, God says, especially at the beginning, he emphasizes this at least twice. He says, I've created everything around you so that you can enjoy it and take care of it. He gave humans everything to enjoy. 
to have dominion over, to rule over. And he also gave us the plant kingdom. And in case you're wondering, like here's, here's a verse in uh, Genesis 1.29. It even says, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. Which ones are not given to human beings? And they're all, all ours. You can have all of them. Every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. In other words, creation was created as a gift to us. We enjoy creation because of who gave us the gift. We just passed over Christmas. And we got some gifts for our children. <laughs> and when they open the gift, they go, oh, I can't believe we got this. Oh, God, Santa's so wonderful. And then they open it up and they play with the thing. And in three days, they're in the driveway running the car over it, right? How would we feel if they abused the gift that we gave them? We'd feel pretty hurt, right? We worked pretty hard to give them this gift. In the same way God gives us creation. We take care of creation, not because it's our mother. The earth did not birth us, God did. We take care of creation because it is our gift from our creator. It's given to us so that we take care of it. Even the angels were created for us. Can you believe that? Everything, angels are creation. In fact, the Bible calls them ministering angels. They minister to us. And they bring glory to God. All creation displays God's glory. We have the ability to use this creation to glorify God. This is why we get such a boost out of creating things. This is why everybody has a little something that they like to do, a little hobby, a little something on the side that involves creation because they get their hands involved in creation to make it better, to make it stronger, to make it nicer. Gardening I never liked it when I was growing up. My, my dad always made me work in the garden. hated it. But now every house that I've stayed in, I've made a little garden in the back. Why? Because I love the idea of putting a little something, burying it, and then seeing something come out of the ground. And then you keep the garden clean, and you get your girls out there to weed the garden. And you put them to work. You, you, you make it beautiful. You keep your lawn beautiful. You, you, you can put your hands in creation and make it beautiful. Cars are not my thing, but it's the same deal. You take things that God has created, put them together, and make something different. Everything that we use in creation, we can use to glorify God because all of it comes from this earth. We get to put it together and make something beautiful out of it. Even fixing our daughter's hair in the morning. <laughs> Building a house from the pieces of creation that God gave us. Everything that we have is given to us by him so that it can serve us and bring glory to him. God made all things good. We as human beings have the ability to make it better. Isn't that crazy? I mean, have you seen yourself when you wake up in the morning? But then you work with creation and you work with creation and you put a little creation on you, and then you, you, all of a sudden you make yourself look better. This need to tinker that we have in creation is not innate to the followers of God. Every, everybody knows we should take care of the earth. But the difference is we know we should take care of it because we want it to bring continual glory to the one who gave it to us. Number three, why this way? Why did God create things in six days. Why give it to us in Genesis the way that he did? Because creation displays God's attributes from its inception to its continuation to the future. 
God is all-powerful. We see that in creation. All things work like they should. Isn't that crazy? The water cycle, I know I've mentioned this before, but every drop of, of precipitation in this world, none of it is new. It's all just recycled. What, what fell on Moses' head falls on ours. Isn't that crazy? God has done an amazing thing with what he has created in creation. We walk by it constantly and we are not amazed. But we are to look at it and say certain things we are to see and say God is amazing, God is all powerful. All things work like they should. Even with sin affecting them, they still work like they should. Most of the time. He is generous. The world is created to assist us. We eat because God created. Isn't that amazing? You live because God gave you creation. So you eat what he has made. He's an artist. All these aspects of creation. I know, I know this, you're probably thinking to yourself, Craig, you're amazed by the smallest things. I really am. Why does a strawberry not taste like a blueberry? Why does a blueberry not taste like a watermelon? Why do they not taste the same? Because God is an artiste. We're not like dogs and eat the same dog food every single day. It could have been that way. It could have very well been that way, but God is an artist. And so what he has created is meant to make us go, wow, this is great. I had some Cinnabons the other day that were awesome. <laughs> All of this was made with us in mind. God created the world with you in mind. This is God's gift to you to enjoy to, to put your hands in, to make better, to give to your children, to make more of, to witness for him. Listen, the stars weren't just made because God was bored. Stars were made so that you would go out in a, in a Colorado night, 15,000 feet up on a mountain, and look up and feel like you can touch them, they're so close. And you are meant to stand there and go, holy smokes, God is incredible. You know why you can see a star that's too far off so that evolution says that it has to be billions of years old because it takes that long for that light to get to the earth? God made it look that way so that you're gonna go, wow, God is incredible. Why else do we have all of these stars? I don't, I don't believe there's alien life anywhere. I believe that all of this was created for us right here on planet Earth. So that we could look at it all and see the incredible immense, immense, beauty in all of it, and be reminded that God is great. Trees weren't just made, they were meant to help us survive and breathe and build from. Sunsets aren't just beautiful because of the pollution in the air. <laughs> They're beautiful because God intended for the molecules to function with other molecules so that when you see a sunset and it's too orange to describe, you're meant to go, wow, God is amazing. This is why I love the fly fish, by the way. When I go into a stream, I can tell you what hole the fish are in, because the laws of nature are always the same. I can tell you what holes are in, I can tell you, I can tell what, you know, what the depth is based on the, the water that's coming over the rocks. I can stand there and I can, I can have the water go around my legs and I can just be in awe that God has created all of this. And when I catch one of those little trout and I bring it in, I just stare at it. The brookies are the most beautiful. They got the little white on their little fins. Beautiful little fish. And then I let them all go. God is amazing. All creation finds its pinnacle in us, in what we think, in what, how we relate to creation around us. 
Creation was made this way for you. It was made to increase our faith. Hebrews 11.3, I remind you again. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Too many people let their questions get in the way of the reality of God. They worship the questions when they should sit back and be amazed at the beauty of creation. If your questions get in the way of you saying, okay, there has to be a God, then you've made your questions your idol. We should study creation, don't get me wrong. (laughs) We should study creation. We should know science. But any study that leads us away from God is idolatry. The study of creation is meant to help us remember how small we are and how great he is. Creation is meant to leave us dumbfounded. A breadcrumb, God. That is why, by the way, creation is constantly attacked by a world that does not believe in God. Because to admit that a God created things is to admit that we're responsible to the one who created them. Because not only did he create the things around us, he created us too. That means we belong to our maker. And that's why I take a literal six-day account in Genesis literally. One more thing. There will be a day when sin that makes things go wrong sometimes in this creation is finally gone. It'll be burned off, it'll be taken away, it'll be eradicated. Jesus will come and he will be the king over all. And the world in which we live today will be the same world that we live in then. Did you know that? I mean, we all talk about like we go into heaven. Heaven is like a holding tank. It's like, that's where you go when you die here. Your body is still here. Your spirit is there. Who wants to be a spirit playing a harp on a cloud for the rest of their lives? Not me. That sounds extremely boring. But the reality of scripture and Revelation at the end of the book, Revelation 21 and 22, is that God will bring us back with him. And when we come back with him, we will be put back on this earth in these bodies and we will eat and we will drink and we will walk and we will travel and maybe even travel to the stars. I don't know. We'll be able to do amazing things. But for all eternity, we will put our minds to doing things and using creation in ways that we never discovered before. We'll discover new, new methods of travel. We'll discover new, new colors. Without sin affecting our minds, we'll discover new ways of painting and new art. And for the rest of eternity, we will use this creation that God has created. Everything goes back to the way it should have been before the fall. And we will use this creation for the rest of eternity to glorify God. One day that'll happen. Not yet, but one day. That'd be a great day. And you'll be with your loved ones who know the Lord forever and ever and ever because they too are a new creation in Christ Jesus. All the more reason to reach this world for Christ, right? I agree. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the world that you have given to us. It's, uh, it's intimidating when you look through a telescope and realize there are billions of galaxies that we have yet to even see. It is it is dumbfounding to think of how the world spins on an invisible axis. It's incredible to think that if the moon were any closer, we'd freeze, and if the sun were any closer, we'd burn. Everything is created exactly as it's meant to be created, so that we can study it, 
and we can proclaim your greatness, and so often we don't. I can only imagine how much we hurt your feelings when we look at creation and attribute it to something else. And the author of all of it waits to be acknowledged. And so, Father, we as your followers acknowledge that you are God, creator of all things. And you have done an incredible job. Thank you for giving all this to us to enjoy, to revel in, to, to share. Forgive us for taking it for granted. And help us to be good stewards of all that you have created. Most of all, may everything that we have, everything that we own, everything around us in creation be used to glorify you. Use us as your stewards to use your creation to declare who you really are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.